Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, December 28th. We hear from a displaced worker on Maui, one of the thousands of families in need of long-term housing because of the wildfires. As we come off National Math Day, we meet a Honolulu teen encouraging other girls to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. Law enforcement agencies recently seized tons of illegal fireworks at the docks, but families are still bracing for a noisy New Year's. We have reminders for pet owners to keep their animals safe. And the intriguing world of jazz, as seen through the eyes of a local musician whose roots are steeped in Hawaiian language and traditional Hawaiian music. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we hear from a Maui trucker whose wife's family home was lost in the Lahaina wildfire. Bobby Asato works for Tri-Isle Trucking and is a longtime ILWU Local 142 member. The union, along with Local 5, took part in a rally last week to draw attention to the plight of those working families who desperately need help with housing. Bobby Asato is one of thousands of Maui workers displaced by the wildfires and anxious to get settled again. He lived in a multi-generational household, a five-bedroom home owned by his wife's family in Lahaina Town. Asato is grateful his family escaped the fire and found a rental for a year. He's also fortunate to own property in Wailuku where he, he can build another home, but the permit process is going very slow. He worries about what will happen when his lease is up and he's anxious to start construction. He is talking to builders, but he has to tear down what's on the property first. Nobody was occupying that home so we just trying to get the process of permitting and all that stuff to get that going so we at least have something you we don't you know nothing's definite of getting back to Lahaina although it's home we really want to get back there but it probably won't for a while right so you need to make renovations on your family's home it, it's unlivable because nobody's been there, like parents are deceased, and because I live behind, uh, you know, we thought about selling it, and we never did get around to it. And luckily, it's still around that you know we're able to get started somewhere. Well, so tell us about the process. I mean, how has it been trying to rebuild over there? It's been like pretty slow. Um, we to couple town meetings that they had after the fire, maybe one or two of them. And, you know, they mentioned about expediting the process for people that lost their homes just to get people back into homes. And they even mentioned a uh, different, you know, portion of the island that you, you may have property that you'll be able to get something. But, you know, we don't know what if that was just, you know, some talk during the meeting. You know, it goes, it, it worked working out that way the first process is trying to get a demolition permit to get the house you know demolished so we can start that process but um you know outside of that we're you know contacting like you know building material places and what kind of packages that they have to you know start a home and whatever else but as i said the process of getting the demolition process moving forward and thereafter, you know, the steps leading up to actually rebuilding the home. What about your family members? I mean, what's their employment like? Are, are, are they still able to work? 
my younger daughter is working at a adjustable hourly times and my wife just goes back to the post office but she's in like another post office in the main post office in line so you know it's like different from when she was downtown because they don't have a status for her in other words or you know because she was in another postal office right so yeah it's a it's a little unsettling for your for your family what is your biggest worry right now? I mean, you'd like to get the permits to begin demolition. What then after that? Are you able to get any assistance from FEMA, you know, or these other agencies that are out there? Well, whatever the insurance, as I said, you know, we did the FEMA thing and then there's like, you know, about being qualified or, you know, because you have insurance, you know, we're just normal people that's trying, you know, you know, we go to work. And as I said, I know everything is uh, not on a timeline, but I'm at a stage where, you know, by the time I wait, who wants to give a guy that's almost 70 years old, like mortgage, right? You know, to start all over again. So if I have to wait that, that process to get back to Lahaina, and, you know, that's why I want to start the Wailuku property and get that over it before that time to get back to my line. I, you know, the kids, that's home for them. So down the road, it's up to them. I'm sure it's unsettling, you know, just given the uncertainty. You are fortunate in so many ways that you do have somewhere it's else fortunate. to build. Yeah. But I understand you're, you're you're frustrated because you want to be in and settled. Yeah. A- anything else you want to share with us that you think would be important for officials to know about what it's like being displaced like this? The permitting is like some of the things. It seems like you should have a degree in engineering, you know. It's not really simple questions like, you know, black and white. It's like, you know, you got to get some help in consultation from someone that actually knows all these things, you know. With the electric company, you know, I need some lines that need to be removed, and they keep saying, oh, they'll um, need to go verify that their line to have it removed and whatever. But So you call back again, and you talk to another person, and you go through the whole scenario again, and it gets, you know, tiring after a while. Any sense from the counties when you might be able to get your demolition permit? Well, um, I got a notification um, last week sometime, just before Christmas, uh, maybe a Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday of last week, showing like uh, something 17% has been completed. So to me, 17% was... That's about it. Looked at the paper. That's about it. They didn't check off any other blocks. And all it said, permit is under review. Got a call on Monday from a building inspector. And there's nothing for you to inspect because he said the process is still under review. He's seen the permit, but he just didn't understand why, you know, it's still under review. And they, he has notice of, you know, some inspection thing. That's where we stand right now. And that was a frustrated Bobby Asato, a member of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, whose Lahaina home was destroyed and who was trying to build a new, another home on other property that he owns in Wailuku. The Maui trucker is close to retirement age and worries about his family's future with so much uncertainty. He feels fortunate to have found a rental for a year and to have resources that other families may not have. But he says the stress hangs heavy going into the new year. Our reality check today is a follow-up on a story about the selection of a new justice for the Hawaii Supreme Court. Honolulu Civil Beat political editor Chad Blair joins us. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is a story about uh, Vladimir Devins. Yeah, Vlad Devins, a private attorney, was uh, nominated by Governor Josh Green 
uh, about two months ago to the Supreme Court. A vacancy opened there, too, actually. And uh, Vlad Devins was confirmed unanimously uh, just before Thanksgiving. But what happened is shortly afterwards, uh, and Civil Beat had the story, uh, it was revealed that Devins did not disclose that he was a director of a super PAC here in the islands. Be changed now. Uh, people might be more familiar with Pacific Resource Partnerships, PRC. Essentially, it's the Carpenters Union and a very influential super PAC. In fact, it spent a lot of money to get Governor Green elected. So it sure looked like uh, an unusual situation that he did not disclose that. Uh, but he got confirmed and then the story broke. Now, the latest is a member of the Democratic Party, a state official or an official with uh, with the party who has run for office here is complaining, you know, you ought to open up that hearing again. You ought to have Carl Rhodes and the Senate Judiciary bring Vlad Devins back and ask him, look, why didn't you disclose this information? What Justin Huey is concerned about is, would the Senate have changed their mind? Would they have voted otherwise if they had known that he had these political connections? Uh, a PRP is no small player, as you know, in, in these islands. Yes, and I, I know your story uh, mentioned uh, uh, this whole super PAC thing, and you right. did talk to, to to Rhodes about you know whether this was proper or not. Right, and and, and Rhodes said, look, I mean, there's there's nothing illegal. He, he didn't say whether they knew or not uh, about the PRP or Be Changed Now connection, but did say that prior political activity, there's not a restriction on that until you're sitting on the bench, until you're actually a judge or a justice. Devins, along with Lisa Ganoza, who's the ICA chief judge, the Intermediate Court of Appeals judge, uh, will be uh, sworn in to the Supreme Court uh, on January the 12th. So there's a, a little time here yet, but there is a concern that, you know, what kind of message does this send? What happens if a case comes before a Justice Devins uh, regarding the carpenters or, or construction, who knows what the case might be. Uh, and so that's a concern. There's another development as well. We have less information, but we're told that uh, there will be a formal complaint filed with the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. That's the organization under the judiciary uh, that essentially looks into complaints against lawyers. I don't know whether that will be settled in time, whether we'll find out about it, but I did learn from a lawmaker uh, granted anonymity to talk about that case. In this case, that person filing the suit, or rather the complaint felt like, hey, this is a problem. You really ought to uh, disclose this information. This is something the public, as well as their lawmakers should know. Yes, and you know, over the years, there's always been lots of concern about the secrecy surrounding mm. the Judicial Selection Committee and that whole process. And we've certainly seen a lot of stories on the national scene with the U.S. Supreme Court and, you know, some of the questions about conflict of interest. With well, the it, that's system. a good point. Justin Huey, in fact, was pointing directly at Clarence Thomas and as along with Samuel Alito. We have seen the news reports of the ProPublica reports about taking money uh, from wealthy benefactors, people with business before the high court and not recusing themselves. This is exactly the kind of thing, I mean, Huey uses the word corruption, uh, that um, that he's concerned about and, and worries that there will not be a, if you will, an ethical, integral uh, uh, court here in Hawaii should people be able to not disclose, to be completely transparent about their backgrounds when elevated to such a high position. Yeah, it, it is just interesting, though, you know, with the calls for transparency in so many sectors of government um, that, yeah, for the high court, you would think they would go, you know, the other way, bend over backwards just to make sure. I will tell you, Carl Rose just briefly said they are going to ask a question going forward. Hey, you know, is there anything we should know about some recent activity in your regard? Uh, presumably such a question could vet uh, that information about super PACs. Not clear, though, uh, whether the Judicial Selection Commission uh, will change their process. They actually do ask questions, and and Vlad Devins chose not to disclose the super PAC connection. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org.
When you support HPR, you help shine the spotlight on Hawaii's next generation of musicians. How long have you been playing the violin? I've been playing for about seven years. I got my violin for Christmas when I was six, and then I started playing probably a month after. Hear from local students every Tuesday on HPR 2's Classical Pacific. I'd say just number one thing for really any musician, but um, even percussionists too, it's really just all about persistence and exactness. There will be times where, you know, you kind of get down about it, but there's always a light around the corner. Help HBR uplift Hawaii's youngest musicians. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. University Laboratory High School sophomore Olive Taylor loves math. She's a member of the 2023 Million Girls Moonshots flight crew. It's a national team of youth leaders who support and encourage young girls to engage in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with the Honolulu team to talk about her love of numbers. Math started ever since I was young. I guess I've always found it as my favorite subject, my favorite, you know, interest. I think it had to do with sort of how infinite it was and how grounding math is. I love math. think something about it is just how, um, you know, diverse it is and how deep it goes. So numbers has never been something I'm, like, stressed about or got overstimulated by because I feel like that's a lot, of, a lot of people, that's what happens with math. It's just too much. Right. It's never been a problem for me, and I'm thankful because it's very beneficial for school. Also very important in this journey are teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Because they set that foundation. They're helping you understand these concepts of math. Yeah. So who are some teachers who have really made a difference? I think a math teacher that was really, really inspirational for me was my seventh grade math teacher, Miss Conrad, who I had over COVID, which was when COVID year hit, we were all online. So she made math so much fun and so very, like, I don't know, she connected the dots so well for me through a computer, um, basically made the class a lot more fun. So she's always brought a passion out of me in math. Um, when I was younger, I was put into sort of advanced class, which is math class, which is in intimidating for a sixth grader. But she made it all the more enjoyable, and I really appreciate that because, I don't know, it's striked my enjoyment for math now. Yeah. Other subjects like English and social studies always sort of mess with my brain because there's, well, there's multiple right answers, and I guess with math, it's just, it's one, it's solid. With the foundation of math, I've been able to grow on that over these past few years, and it's just grown and grown to be more of my favorite subject. So math, always a part of your life. Numbers never scared you. In fact, you were always working toward that one answer yeah. out there, and you were, you're like a seeker. What was your aha moment that you knew you belonged in STEM? Can you share a story, perhaps, that will illustrate how STEM became your path? Surprisingly, not really surprisingly for me, I guess, through TV. When I was younger, I loved watching TV. So the show Project MC Squared on Netflix is a show about girls who love STEM, and it, they focused on all four main components of STEM, including art, which is STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. That show, I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with how diverse all the girls were and how all their interests were and how they came together. It's a show about spies and STEM and technology and how girls rule. And it's just something I fell in love with and watched the seasons over and over again. And I think that's when I knew that that was something I wanted to do. Mm. And that was something I wanted to be a part of, seeing that movement within those girls who just love STEM and just wanted to make sure other girls knew about STEM. And I think that's what the show was all about. And I I latched on. I joined. I joined. They, they got me. <laughs> they did. Can you tell me again? I've never heard of this project. Project MC Squared. So with this, with Project MC Squared, what was the cast like? Um, so there was four, I think, or five main characters, and they each specialized in a different aspect of STEM. So one, her name was Adrian. I remember her because she was my favorite. She was with culinary chemistry, and she was a culinary chemist, which focuses on the science behind food and the mix of food and science. And that really connected with me. I know I said I'm a big math person, but I'm also a big foodie. And I just love finding the science behind food. And that became like my little, um, you know, journey in life or new idea in life to follow and figure out the science behind food. So I 
I really resonated with that character, Adrian. Um, there are other characters that focus on technology and they focused on math and they focused on engineering and melding and showing girls getting their hands dirty and getting their hands in the work and in STEM and making awesome things that you could, that you could just in awe by. Mm. So we're talking to you just as your winter break is getting underway. But I learned about you because you had a very full summer as a member of the Million Girls Moonshot Flight Crew. Yep. Okay, so break that down for me. Explain your job as a flight crew member. Oh, yeah. So um, I was a part of the 2023 Million Girls Moonshot Flight Crew. And basically, it was a group of a large group of girls from all over the world. We had girls from almost every single state um, in the in America. And we basically came together and shared ideas. We did a lot of Zoom calls together and we were able to learn more about each other. But the big buildup was I did over the summer in Atlanta, Georgia, at Georgia Tech. We were able to come together, most of us, thankfully. We were able to come together and just be together because, you know, you're not able to see these people that you see across the screen. We got to see each other from all across the world, and it just went as far as, I don't know, states I've never even touched. And I got to learn so many stories about these amazing girls who had similar or such diverse interests, things I've never even heard about. They were so passionate about and having similar passions and that I was able to do that this summer, and I just really, it was a really amazing experience. Hmm. I also understand, though, that you are very creative artistically. You were painting like four hours a day on canvas. I'm so impressed. Yeah, I love art. Um, over COVID, again, I okay. painted every single day um, over summer, and I just paint for hours mm. with acrylic paints and canvases, and I meet my mom raid the stores and stock up for so that I could fuel my little passion. But it was just something that was so relaxing and I guess relieving during that like stressful time for me. Mm. So yeah, art was a very helpful outlet during that time. Sounds like you were, you know, very mindful of, you know, your mental health as mm -hmm. well. So to be able to have that release. Mm -hmm. And for COVID, what grade were you in then? Seventh grade? Um yeah, it hit sixth grade and I have seventh grade entirely online. Okay. How are you incorporating STEM, STEAM, into your passions? Um, I think it helps knowing that STEM isn't everything. As I was younger, I would do a lot of coding programs. I do a lot of art programs. And I don't do as many of them now, being a lot busier as I've grown older. Um, I still sort of apply those ideas into what I do now. So when I was younger and I would code and I would make websites and video games, I come home now and managing my computer is that much easier or, you know, learning how to, the science behind baking and why we use baking soda, I know that putting too much could make it, I don't know, explode. It's just so much helpful. It's, it's very helpful and it allows me to see the world in such a deeper and more intimate level than I would have, if not. I see. Okay. So is baking one of your passions? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. What is your, one of your favorite recipes or what do you like making? Um, today I made banana nut muffins this morning actually, but I like to make um, cookies. Uh, I also like to cook as well. I like to make like fried rice. I don't know. I just like being in the kitchen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's also that understanding and knowing that, okay, there are proportions and yeah. when you're following a recipe, if you're a really good scientist, usually you excel at baking. Yeah, it's such a science. It's so exact. Yeah. Mm. So right now, as you have this time and space to talk about math, if there's somebody out there listening right now, what sort of advice or what would you like to tell them, you know, sharing your wisdoms with them right now? Um, I think I would just say to not be afraid to test the waters. There's so much things like I'm into cooking, I'm into baking, I'm into drawing, I'm into math, I'm into everything. And I would just tell the that girl or that kid that there's so much for you and there's just so much that you don't even know about. So don't be afraid to jump into it with your eyes closed and just let it indulge you and just experience it because you don't know what is to come after it. Okay. Well, on top of culinary science, you are also into landscape architecture and aerospace-based programs. Tell me more about that. Um, landscape architecture, I feel like, is just a great combination of math and design and art and stuff like that. So the landscape part, I just like being outside. I also really like hiking and being in nature. So that's why landscape architecture is a career I'm very fond of. As for aerospace, I like to be up in the sky. I love to travel. I love to be on planes. And so I've always really been 
drawn towards flight and things like that, which is funny because of the flight crew. But um, yeah, so I also like those career paths as well. Those are all just very, they all resonate with me. And I know how diverse they are. They just, I don't know, they're all, they're all for me. Wow. How do you stay grounded in school? Um, we have um, a math club at my school as well as a robotics program. So I'm in both of those, which is, um, it's very low key. It's not super competitive, which is helpful to nurture that enjoyment and not make it so serious. But um, yeah, I'm in those programs. I'm also in a lot of mental health org programs and a lot of social programs with my friends. And I'm able to connect the whole school aspect with friends. And yeah, I'm, I'm a very social person. And I love being able to do those things and join those clubs and just jump right into it with my friends and my community and my school community. Yeah. So oh. I do a lot of that type of stuff. Okay. Well, before we go, any shout outs? <laughs> I'd like to thank my mom, my dad, my brothers, uh, my grandma, all my friends, my school, University Laboratory School, and the flight crew. Yeah. All of them. They've just got me to where I am today, right here. Yeah. STEM rules the world. Oh, that was Olive Taylor, University Laboratory High School sophomore, talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Taylor is a 2023 Million Girls Moonshot Flight Crew member. It's a group initiative to encourage equity and to inspire one million more girls in STEM learning by 2025. Taylor credits her mom for signing her up for STEM clubs. She's also participated in the University of Hawaii's Genius Day program because of her excellent aptitude for numbers. You go, girl. Clip on the radar, never know just what you'll find. We can read the signs, daring by design. We get the picture when they show it as a sketch. We're full steam ahead, good is what you get. Look out now, the world will never be the same. Support for HPR comes from the Stephen Inglis Project, presenting Hawaii Winterland, a concert celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead at Hawaii Theater on New Year's Eve, December 31st. Tickets at rootsmusichawaii.com. Live music is back at HPR's Atherton Studio. Join us every Saturday night in January at the Atherton in Honolulu for live classical music from Barden Niskala duo, Gaylord DeWald, Sean Conley, and Tommy Morrison. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Hotel and Resort, celebrating its 60th anniversary with a New Year's Eve diamond celebration featuring live music and a special countdown show by Sky Elements. KahalaResort.com New Year's Eve celebrations in Hawaii can be epic, packed with close friends and family, great food, and spectacular fireworks shows. It can also be a traumatizing event for pets. The loud explosive sounds from illegal firecrackers and aerials that have been going off in some neighborhoods since Halloween have spooked cats and dogs, and many families have been reporting missing pets as a result. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked with the Hawaiian Humane Society about how to keep pets safe during the noisy festivities. Can you talk about some of the stories that you've heard in the past about reactions that pets have to the noise from the fireworks? Yeah, I mean, it's common when, you know, there's sudden loud noises, uh, such as fireworks, pets get hacked erratically. So I know of a, of a dog who could scale a six foot fence quite easily. It was a bigger dog, of course. But that's just what happens when a pet is really scared they react in um in ways they normally wouldn't you know with the shaking sometimes they'll run away to try and find a safe space um sometimes they'll bury themselves further into your home to be safer or come to you for comfort yeah i think we've all had a friend or a neighbor or it's happened to to us that you know that our, our pets are uh, get real anxious um and have either you know just gone crazy or, or, or just went missing. I mean, just tried to get away from the noise and, and just disappeared. Do you know if there are any numbers on how many pets go missing or, or suffer serious injury because they're trying to escape the noise? I don't have exact numbers, but I do know we do see an uptick 
around the holidays, and that could be for a multitude of reasons, but we do believe um, that fireworks around the New Year's holiday at least plays a part of it. Um, as far as numbers goes, I don't have an exact number, and you know, since this year hasn't happened yet, uh, I don't have this year, but you know, there are steps you can take to make sure that you and your pets are, are safe this holiday. Yeah, let's let's talk about solutions. The the most obvious seems to be to relocate to an area where you know the noise won't upset your pet, but I know that's not always a possibility. So I've read about some other things that people are suggesting. Uh, there's special kinds of collars with pheromones out there. I recently read that some people give CBD oil to their pets to calm them down. And I've also heard some people use just straight up tranquilizers to kind of knock their pets out. What are some of the options that are out there? Some of the safe, you know, and and, uh, common options that are out there? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, keeping your companion animal in a safe space indoors and, um, you know, not leaving it unattended outside is a really great first step. And if your pet further is scared of loud noises, uh, leaning on the radio or television at a normal volume you know, to provide your pet with some companionship. It also, you know, adds familiar noises in the house um, that eases their anxiety a little bit. And um, if you can't keep your pets indoors, consider keeping them in an enclosed garage. You know, as you said before, animals may panic and escape the yard, and even if it's fenced. So ensuring your pets have proper identification is um, also very important. If your pet does get lost, having that microchip uh, a microchip implant will, uh, you know, help get reunite you with your pet faster if it is found, right? Mm-hmm. So the microchip implant, which holds um, a, a serial number where they're able, we're able to look in an online database and get your contact information. So making sure that it's um, updated in your online database uh, from the microchip manufacturer or a free service like findanimals.org is really important. Uh, Also, I recommend putting a collar on, even if it's just for the day, just in case. Um, As far as uh, things like CBD or tranquilizers or those kind of methods, it's best to consult with your veterinarian first. You know, giving your veterinarian a call, explaining how your pet reacts to these fireworks. And they're going to have the most up-to-date research on things like CBD. Uh, they'll be able to recommend medication if needed. And, and they're able to, uh, you know, you know your pet the best with your veterinarian. And you guys are able to come up with a, uh, a treatment plan um, for this event. And I, I've seen some pets remain relatively calm or, or kind of just ignore what's going on. But I've, I've heard plenty of stories of pets having an adverse reaction to the, the noise and the smoke and just the general activity. Do you have an idea of like what percentage of pets are impacted by the noise and, and the smoke and all, you know, all the things that come with fireworks? Mm, yeah, I don't have an exact number um, about what percentage of pets are, but I want to say a lot of pets yeah. are afraid of loud sudden noises as most of us are. And the thing about pets is they don't understand that, you know, this is a celebratory firework. They think it's a loud, scary noise. And so from that perspective, it can cause a lot of anxiety. And, you know, my, personally, my dog himself, he's usually not scared with um, a lot of the loud noises and a firework blew, I feel right next to my condo made the loudest noise, it shook the ground. And that's the first time I've ever seen him scared over a firework. So it can happen to any animal um, uh, where there's that that perceived danger. Yeah, I've, I've seen a variety of pets have that panic when it came to the loud explosions and, this, and the sudden noises. When we think about the idea of, of just relocating somewhere else for the night, you know, or for a couple of days to get away from the noise. Does the Humane Society, do they do they have an idea of where might be a better place to go? Because I, I, I've had New Year's celebrations in, in a lot of different areas on the island. I know in, you know, like central Oahu, you know, Eva Beach side, 
that's that's where things are seem to be the loudest, the the most fireworks, the most parties. But I've had New Year's up on the North Shore, and it seems to be much quieter up there. Is there anywhere that you feel might be a good way to kind of get away from the noise? Yeah, if you're able to find a safe space to stay for the night, or even you know. Um, stay with a friend's place up at that North Shore where it is a bit quieter or, you know, areas known here on Oahu are known to be a bit quieter during New Year's. If you're able to stay in those areas and your pet is super anxious, then, of course, that would be a really great option. Um, But if you're not able to, uh, just, you know, try your best to comfort your pet and also don't, you know, don't put the TV too loud. Just keep everything normal and just be next to your pet comforting them if you're going to be staying home this New Year's. When we think about how we celebrate New Year's here in Hawaii and, and how it's such a festive and a, and a family event and, and, and a tradition that is that um, you know has been going on for generations, what, what do you think is the best way to balance the local style of New Year's celebrations and compassion for pet owners who have pets that are adversely impacted by the noise? Yeah, I mean, I think having a conversation with your neighbors about what's going on, you know, knowing your neighbors, knowing if they have that pet that is anxious around fireworks, and just making sure that, you know, you're playing a part in your community. I think that's the most important thing is people talking to each other and solving solutions in a civil matter. And I believe, you know, pet owners understand that, you know, their pets get very scared during during firework displays. And most people understand that. So I think having that conversation or, you know, having that place to retreat to, it, it would be great options. That was a rebroadcast of a conversation that HPR's Russell Subiano had with former Hawaiian Humane Society's communication coordinator, Thomas Hands, about how to protect pets during New Year's Eve celebrations. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting David Hockney, Perspectives Should Be Reversed, prints from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. HPR's corporate relations team is growing. We're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Nicholas Lama is a local musician who is best known for being a member of the award-winning Hawaiian music group Keho. He's a graduate of Kamehameha Schools and has earned degrees in Hawaiian language and music from the University of Hawaii. He's also a graduated dancer and drummer of Robert Casimero's Hula Halau. Today he is taking his experience with music and the Hawaiian language to focus on a new approach to mele, one that blends innovation and tradition. He calls this new project Peva, and will be releasing its first album tomorrow. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Lum in our studio to talk about his unique vision for Hawaiian music. Can you talk about where your passion and your talent for music comes from? We're kind of born into a musical family. It's my dad, my mom. My dad is Randy Lum. My mom is Janine Lum. And I have one older brother, Zachary Lum, who's also a musician. We play in the group Keoho. But my dad was a musician when he was younger. So from birth already, it was really common for us to be playing music and just hearing music a lot around the house. 
my dad would always be playing instruments, ukulele, guitar, whatever it may be. Another thing I kind of think a lot about is when we were younger, we would go to my grandma's house every Saturday just for like a family dinner kind of thing. And this is my mom's side of the family, actually. And a lot of that side of the family, they're pretty musical people. And I never really realized that that's not necessarily a normal thing, mm-hmm. I guess. Like I thought everybody could sing and I thought everyone could play instruments and stuff. Until later in my life, I went to other parties and realized, oh, that might not be true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, music was definitely a part of our lives from birth all the way up until now. What kind of music did your parents play in the house? So my dad was, uh, he played all kinds of music, but he was uh, mostly a Hawaiian musician too. So it was a lot of Hawaiian music, a lot of island music, I would say, CNK, stuff like that. So you're known to many Hawaiian music fans as a member of Keoho. How would you describe their sound or vibe? What's the most Keoho song the band has recorded? Oh man, that's tough. I think we're most known for the song Hano Hano Haiku. That was a song my brother wrote. I think it won Song of the Year, the year that album came out, which is the first album. That's probably the most Keoho-esque song, I would say. My parents listened to Hawaiian music when I was growing up, and I would say that Keoho has a very classic vibe to it, right? Yep. With Keoho's music, we try to lean way further on the side of tradition versus innovation. I guess we still do innovate in some Mm -hmm. ways, but it's definitely more inspired by artists like Johnny Almeida and Lena Machado and, and people of that time. And now you're embarking on a new project. Can you talk about Peva? So Peva is, uh, how do I even start this? So I, I grew up listening to all kinds of different music. I actually, in like middle school, high school, I kind of shied away from Hawaiian music a little bit, not because I thought it wasn't cool or anything, but just because my brother was super into it and I kind of wanted to do my own thing. So I would just listen to a lot of different stuff. I got really into R&B. I started my doctorate degree at UH Hilo, and that program is about revitalization of language and culture, specifically Hawaiian. So I was trying to think about research for my dissertation, and I thought that because I'm a musician, right, how can I leverage music to kind of revitalize language, right? And the thing I thought about is a lot of my peers the type of music they listen to is not Hawaiian, right? There's not a lot of people who's listening to Johnny Omeda and... People of that nature, even though I really enjoy it. But I was trying to think of how to, how to write and compose music that sounds very modern, sounds like things people are listening to on the radio nowadays, pop, R&B, hip hop, whatever it may be, and kind of blend that with songs that are written using traditional themes and traditional devices, poetic devices, and that's kind of the birth of Peva. I've read on your website that it's a new approach to Mele Hawaii, one that focuses on a responsible blending of innovation and tradition to create a brand new kind of music the part about that that I'm curious about is the responsible blending. Yep. What does that mean? So the the number one thing I always think about when I talk to people about innovation is actually a quote by Kimo Lamakeolana, highly respected scholar and musician in Hawaiian music. His quote is that if you want to make any kind with Hawaiian music, then write your own music, which is very true. And, and I think we're at a time now where people are becoming very fluent and very literate in their language where they're able to start innovating. So my approach, my humble approach to this is I'm trying to write the text in a way that if you just looked at it without listening to it, you would think that, oh yeah, this is something very old possibly, right? Maybe you found this in the newspaper, the Hawaiian newspaper. But when you write it like that following traditional songwriting practices and and combine that with music that's just completely modern, very, very new, that's kind of the responsible blending that I'm pointing towards. So it's like combining traditionally written text with modern music. A couple of years ago, we had the remaining members of Peter Moon Band in here doing an interview with one of our other reporters. They told a story about how they did their own version of 
Kaulana Napua. Kaulana Napua. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. So, so when Larry Kimura does the the whole speech in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so they were talking about how they got a lot of grief. Yeah, from sure. the aunties yeah. and the uncles for changing Kaulana Napua. Mm-hmm. Do you think that because of the times that we're in now, the better way to approach it is to write your own as opposed to maybe updating classic Hawaiian mm-hmm, music? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, my personal beliefs are once you release something to the world, right, it kind of becomes, you don't really own it anymore, right? Yeah. Like people can kind of take it and do what they want with it. And I mean, if people did that with my music, I'd actually feel rather flattered for that. But I can also see how some people can take that as disrespectful in in, a, in the sense where it's like, I wrote it for it to be this way, feel this way. And, you know, if you want to make any kind with it, then make your own. But I think definitely now we're at a point where we're just a lot more founded in our language. There's a lot more people speaking. I'm not saying we're in a great spot yet or anything. We're still going forth on this path of revitalization in language and culture. But yeah, I think we're we're definitely moving on the right path. Yeah. And that path is getting more comfortable with things like this. So far, you've released three songs as Peva, and they sound really different than the music you've made with Keoho. In fact, they sound different than really any kind of Hawaiian language music I've ever heard. On your website, you say that Le Onauna served as the catalyst for Peva and the idea of innovation in Mele Hawaii can you talk about that? Yep. So Leo Nauna was the first song that I kind of wrote in this style. And this is far before I even became a doctorate student at UH Hilo. Oh, And I just was just playing around with stuff. I was really, what well, not was, I, I still am very into jazz. So I was messing around on my instrument and kind of came up with this nice melody and I, I thought it was cool. I was geeking out on it. And then I started setting Hawaiian text to it versus English. And I thought to myself like, hmm, this is something, you know, this is, I think something that doesn't exist right now. I'm not saying it's not possible for anyone else to create it, but I just think that people are so hesitant to create anything innovative right now just because of the backlash that people might feel after i feel that especially because of my work with keoho and you know leaning farther on the side of tradition that i've established that not that i'm somebody or anything like that but that i'm able to do that as well yeah right and that this is just another avenue to express hawaiian language hawaiian music and kind of just expand the audience I imagine that these songs and this this forthcoming album is a product of your evolution as a person and as a musician. Was there anything in particular that prompted this evolution? No, I don't think there was like a specific moment. I was always really interested in just like broadening my perspective, you know, like I never was someone who wanted to, I do Hawaiian music and that's all I do. You know, I, I always try to listen to all kinds of different music, even music I don't typically like at first listen. But yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint a specific moment when I was like, I'm going to do something that's going to make people think, what is this? You know, <laughs> I liked how you kind of phrased that, that it was just a conglomeration of everything that I've went through and it led up to this point And that's why I'm, I'm doing yeah. it at this point. Is there any kind of music that you listen to that people might be surprised that you listen to? <laughs> For people who don't know me, and especially if they're listening to the Peva stuff and then like <laughs> listening to me talk. I'm actually a voice major at UH Manoa. So I went through this phase where like all I would listen to is a product music, tenors, yeah. Interesting. Benjamino Gili and uh-huh. Franco Corelli and all these beautiful tenor voices. Yeah. That's one. I listen to a lot of hip hop, a lot of R&B, a lot of jazz. Yeah. Are there any artists that maybe their sound or their technique kind of has found their way into Peva? 
Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. I will say one, and people who know me, they're going to crack up about this, but there's an artist, I don't know if you know who this is, is um, Bruno Major. He's an artist from the UK. And I think I have about five albums that I've ever listened to that I can listen to it cover to cover, and I like every single song. And his first album was one of those for me. And I don't think it's necessarily anything special that he did. It's just I really resonated with the way his music sounds. And that's an album that I definitely took a lot of ideas from. And this album was really inspired by that one. You'll be releasing the entire album on December 29th, right? Mm -hmm. What will that moment be like for you to share this project with the world? And are there any live performances in the works? Um, it's going to be great. I, I remember when I first released Leo Nauna, I was pretty scared, honestly. It's just the Hawaiian language community and the Hawaiian music community, I feel like, is really tight-knit. And to do something like this, I think, is kind of scary. Yeah, It's something that kind of we talked off-air about this, but it kind of doesn't exist yet, right? So change is scary. I think after releasing those first few singles, I kind of got those jitters out. So now I'm more excited than anything, just to see what people think, you know? And in terms of live performances, will you be live performing, performances. performing live down the road? Don't have anything planned for that, honestly. I kind of, I don't even know if I want to do this live. It's so like, people will hear it when they hear it, but it's very yeah. produced, that's why. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it would require a lot of, it's not just a three-piece Hawaiian band, it would require a lot. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Yeah. I didn't really have plans for it though. Putting out some some new music with some fresh vibe to it. I can only imagine that that can only be a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited for it. Just to see how people react. I'm, I'm not expecting everyone to love it. I'm not expecting everyone to hate it, but it's going to shake things up, I think, a bit. Nicholas Lum, thanks so much for coming into the station today. Thanks, really Russell. appreciate it, man. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. local musician Nicholas Lum talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about his new music project, Peva. Peva's first album will be released tomorrow on all major platforms. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho show for you featuring staff favorites as we look back on 2023. What are your hopes for the new year? Call or talk back line. Record something. 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation segments on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs>